Guys, would you pray with me before we jump into today's sermon on the book of Exodus? We're going to be covering chapters 15, 16, 17 today, and our reading took little snippets of each of those. And we're going to talk about the Wilderness University. So let's uh, let's pray before we hop in. God, we thank you for your word. I pray, Jesus, as I prepare this message, that you would uh, use my words, Lord, to be your words, to speak life and truth into the hearts of your people. Lord, for those that maybe are listening to this who don't know you, God, I pray today you would draw them into a life-giving relationship with you, Lord. We all need you. We all are so... Uh, uh, in need, Father, of your grace in our lives. And I just pray that as we look at your word today, remind us again of just how much you love us, how much you desire to grow us more and more in you. We ask these things in your name. Amen. So the people of Israel are now out of Egypt. They are on the way, led by God into the wilderness and toward the promised land. And if you're a Christian today, the parallels are so clear, so strong for us. We too are out of Egypt. If you have come to Christ, you have uh, accepted that he has liberated you from sin and death at the cross. You've asked for forgiveness of your sins. You've repented and believed, as Jesus says. We, uh, we are now out of the bondage of our sin, out of the bondage of addiction, out of the bondage of our fears, and out of the bondage, ultimately, of our death. And now in Christ, we are on the way. We are saved. And now we're on the way in a journey with him towards the promised land. But we are not yet united, reunited with Christ in his new creation. There's uh, still brokenness in our world. There's still things left to do. But we are on the way in the wilderness of life. We have met Christ. We have been uh, saved and we have come out of the Red Sea through uh, through the waters into God's new creation. But now we are on the way to when that creation, new creation, when heaven and earth become uh, married and united together as Revelation 21, 22 puts it. And we will come together and God will dwell with us. So we're on the way in this life between the two advents, the first advent of Jesus coming at Christmas and the second advent when he will come again. So we're in the wilderness of life. Spurgeon called the wilderness the Oxford and Cambridge for God's students. I love that term, not just because I really like school, but I think it captures the heart of what the Christian life and what our lives are often about. We are students, you know, disciple means student. We are students of God. And the wilderness has been identified throughout the church's uh, history, throughout the Christian tradition, as the place where God is at work. He is training us. He is discipling us. He is sanctifying us. And this is why Tony Merida, who writes a commentary on Exodus, describes this as the wilderness university. You are enrolled with me in the university of the wilderness. So we might ask, well, what classes are taught in this university? What can we expect as we journey with God out of our sin and into eternal life? Perhaps a better question is, what do we need to unlearn? What habits, what uh, systems of thought have we come with before we engaged with Christ, or even along the way that we have learned inappropriately that we now need to relearn in Jesus? 
Because the key is, folks, this is necessary because we're not just to be freed, we're not just to be saved, but God actually wants to transform you. He actually wants to bring you not just from being justified, but to being sanctified so that we can indeed in the end be glorified with him. God, we could put it this way, isn't just interested in saving your soul, but transforming your whole self to be the person that he wants you to be. In a sense, to be a Christian, to grow in Christ, to let go of our sin and put on his character, is to become truly human. This is the original vocational call that we have going all the way back to the first page of the Bible to be with God in relationship with him, working with him in partnership towards the human project, the cultural project of God's creation, worshiping and honoring him and working with him, moving forward uh, in the project of human flourishing in life. This is the original call of humanity. And so in Christ, all things are being reconciled back to him. And so all of our work and all of our family life, our business life, our financial lives, every aspect of life, your sexual life, every aspect of life is now in the process of being redeemed and made holy in and through Christ. So we're in the wilderness university. We're becoming who we're called to be in Jesus, which is really to be truly human, to become who we're meant to be in Christ. Philip Ryken puts it this way. He says, going through the wilderness was not necessary for Israel's salvation. We could say that had happened uh, previously at the Red Sea, where they finally, uh, you know, Pharaoh's finally defeated and they've come out. So the wilderness was not necessary for Israel's salvation per se, but it was necessary for their sanctification. You see the difference. They're saved, but now they're needing to be transformed. Clement of Rome centuries ago said this about Israel's journey into the wilderness. After the Red Sea crossing, Moses led the people into the wilderness that God might root out the evils which had clung to them by the long-continued familiarity with the customs of the Egyptians. And so like Israel, We are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We have crossed over out of death into life by God's grace. We are now on the way to the promised land. It's a journey of faith. We're going through the wilderness. And as we go along this road, God is rooting out the evil in our hearts. He's growing us and teaching us to trust in him and to love him and to follow him. And this is true for all of us. If you ask anyone who's been a Christian for a long time, that this is a continual work of progress. As we go deeper in Jesus, we identify deeper and deeper the root of our own sinfulness, of areas that we need to give over to God, of our own attitudes, our own behaviors, and asking God to come and root that out of us and to replace it with his character and his love and his, his healing. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 9-10 says, These stories remind us what not to do along the way. They serve as a reminder to us today not to put Jesus to the test, right? To not get into an attitude of, complaining and lashing out at others, which we see time and time again in Israel's story. Instead, we're being called here to learn to trust in God and his provision in our lives. And perhaps uh, this is really the key from this particular passage. So we see three tests highlighted in the readings, two related to the need of water, one to the need for bread. 
and Israel needing to learn, not learning greatly, but needing to learn to trust God for daily bread, for daily provision for their lives. When they are tempted to just go in a mode of complaining and worrying about life, God is trying to teach them that they can actually trust in him. And this is where the rubber hits the road for us so often in our lives. It's easy to become complainers, to lash out at others, to blame others for what's wrong. Um, instead, God is calling us to trust in him, to actually seek him, to know that he's got us. These really hit close to home as well, uh, the need for water and food for any of us, because a lot of our lives are geared around the rhythm of eating meals, uh, preparing meals. I mean, imagine as a family going, going on a trip, wanting to have supplies and preparing for your kids. And you don't know along the way if the water's going to be safe at the next stop. You don't actually have the snacks prepared, right? The kids will get hangry. They will be angry and hungry. And it's not going to be great. You may feel anxious about heading out into life, not knowing if everything's prepared for you. This is how Israel felt. We can be anxious about getting sick. We can be anxious about all sorts of things about tomorrow. And if that's you, you can identify with the Israelites here. Chapter 15, 24. What are we going to drink? They ask. It's similar to the, are we there yet? Right? Of kids in the backseat. And you would think, you would hope that Israel has learned to cry out to God in prayer rather than to complain sideways to the people around them. And it shows almost a, well, sort of an immaturity, to be honest. It's not unlike little kids, right? But Moses, however... <clears throat> does cry out to God and God answers. And once again, Exodus is holding up a mirror to our own lives, right? What's my first reaction in life when trouble comes? Do I, is it faith-filled prayer to God or is it grumbling anxiety? I just talk sideways to the people around me. Tony Merida writes that some call anxiety a functional atheism, a functional atheism. When we are consumed with our worries, we actually stop believing in God. And into their need, into this sort of brokenness, as they are indeed in real need, but also responding in, in a faithless way, God intervenes with his amazing grace. The key is not just that God does a miracle, which is neat, but that God is willing to do it even for people who complain against him. This is the sheer grace of God to us, folks, that even when we are in our sin, Christ came to die for you. Even when we are in our brokenness, when we don't deserve it, God has come to love you, to care for you. He still loves you, even in the brokenness of life, even when it seems like, God, how would you lead me into this moment in my life? I've tried to follow you, and now I'm in the wilderness, and there's nothing to drink, and there's nothing to eat, and I'm anxious about it. God says, trust me, trust me in the midst of this. He's willing to do it, even when they just complain. And notice again, the larger pattern. First, they are saved. Then now they're learning about obedience and following God. Following God, the, the requirements of, of, of faith and trust, living for God. These aren't the prerequisites for salvation. This was not the basis of the salvation. It was not their works. God had brought them out of Egypt by his sheer grace. Now he's instructing them how to live. And it's the same for us. At the cross, Jesus suffered and died so you and I could have eternal life that begins now, today. We don't need to work for that, but we live out an obedient life in response to that. Our works don't save us. 
we are saved first by God. And now we, we live that out in sort of joyful uh, obedience, response to God's sheer grace. Notice also God wants to care for them spiritually and physically. Verse 26 talks about it's, he's the God who heals. This is about their wellness, their soundness, both physically and spiritually. God wants to give them water to drink, but he also wants to restore them, restore their souls. And I want to say this, whether God provides by some miracle or provides by his providence, you know, leading them to natural water sources, both are gifts, both are an extension of his grace and his guidance in life. And the same is true of us. There's moments where it's it's a miraculous thing uh, where God provides. There's also moments where God provides through his providence. Um, both are God at work, sheer grace gifts of God. That's the first test of water. The second test is the test of bread. Again, Israel's complaining and God provides manna and quail for them to eat. It's really easy to grumble and complain when something's wrong. This just comes out over and over again in this passage. Paul actually talks about complaining as something we need to avoid. Philippians 2.14 says, do everything without grumbling and complaining. Everything without grumbling and complaining. But Israel has been grumbling under Pharaoh, grumbling at the Red Sea, at Marah, against their leaders, against God, and God has just provided for them, and they're still complaining, right? God has still provided for them despite their ingratitude. And I want you to notice that. Again, God's sheer grace to provide for them even when they really don't hear it or deserve uh what God is saying in terms of his faithfulness and his love. And I want to say, you know, gratitude is so important. And during this time with with the coronavirus and COVID-19, we may feel that we are without in some ways. But have you have you stopped to just recognize just how much, how much God has blessed us, just how much we can be thankful for? Of course, some things have changed. The future can feel like it's not set. But can I just remind you, things always change. That's not new. And the future was never set, right? That's, that's just the reality of life. In all of this, God is still God and he is unchanging and he is good. And so can we see perhaps his provision at work in our lives, even when things look different around us, even when people are wearing masks here and there, or there's different cleaning protocols, or we feel anxious about gatherings with people. Can we just just lay some of that aside for a moment and just say, you know what, God, you've been so good in this. We, Lord, we thank you for your protection and your keeping over us. We thank you that you are alive and at work, uh, opening us, bringing us through the classes of this wilderness university to reveal what's going on in our hearts. And for some of us, that that will come full circle in our commitment to, to still gathering like this online or in person to be part of the body of Christ. Sometimes when we get out of the habit of coming to church physically, come, you know, coming online is helpful, but it's a little bit of an easier commitment, you know, to just click a few things and sort of watch something than to come and actually, you know, actively participate in something. The danger is when we get out of the habits of engaging with the church, we can just start to feel like, well, that doesn't really matter. I don't really feel like I need that. And the, you know, 
it becomes very much about yourself instead of thinking, you know, God actually does call us to gather together, to be together. This is an unusual time. And so we've made an emphasis on, on being able to do this online and to be able to, um, you know, open the church building doors and to gather together as best as we can. And we're, you know, which is going well, but to recognize in all of this, God is still good. And, and this is a, a time for me to examine my own heart and say, you know what, it may be, uh, easy for me to just lapse in my faith? Have I, have I just become kind of coasting in my faith in my life? Or have I chosen to press into God during a time where, uh, things are different and, uh, you know, I need to, I'm out of the habit of some things. I need to press into God to make sure I'm staying faithful and strong in him. I encourage you to do that. Let COVID be a class in the wilderness university where you are exploring What's going on in your own heart and soul as we look to God to provide for us? Merida, uh, Tony Merida, in his commentary, he points out four important aspects of the bread. He says it's supernatural. It's a picture of God's provision. It's sufficient. It was enough. They weren't to hoard it, right? It's daily bread. Eat what you could and no one knew lack. You just ate what was there for today. No one knew. I mean, our society is so different, right? The tendency to, to stockpile everything. Uh, and yet we are still called to practice generosity to those in need, to give cheerfully of what we have. I love that. So it was supernatural. It was God's provision. It was sufficient. It was enough for today. You didn't need to worry about tomorrow. It was sacred. God told Moses to put some of it away in the ark, a reminder of God's salvation and provision, an important way. Of remembering. It was just so key for them to try and ingrain this in their minds, to remember God's love for them. And, and finally, the bread was sanctifying in the sense that God is not just filling their bellies with bread, but he is shepherding their hearts. He's shaping their character. Again, daily, daily, the people had to engage with the provision of God's grace. They couldn't just come once a week on a Sunday and kind of get enough for the week, so to speak. It's not like you can just show up to a service like this, click onto it and kind of read some comments and comment and listen, and you're good for the week, right? There was a need here for the children of Israel to come daily to depend on God's grace to get them through the day. And in the same way for us, we don't just come once a week to gather together as Christians and to hear God's word. We need to come daily before the Lord in prayer. We need to come daily before God and listen to him through his word. Some of you may be saying that I just need a word from God. I need to hear him speak to me. Open your Bible. This is God's word to us. Pray and meditate on God's word and he will speak to your heart. Uh, so this is about shepherding their hearts. The, the bread is supernatural. It's sufficient. It's sacred, but it's also sanctifying God doing a work in them and helping them to get this rhythm of relying on him daily for their physical bread. But of course, it's growing a faith in them as well. Have you, do you come daily to the manna of God in God's word? I'm going to get my Bible. Do you come daily to this word? You come daily to the fresh manna of God that is waiting for you on the ground. Or do you say, I had enough on Sunday, I'm good, thanks. The third test is the water from the rock. We read again in, in chapter 17, 2 and 3, they complained to Moses, they grumbled against Moses. At the end of this event, they actually say in verse 7, is the Lord among us or not? Oh, 
There's three failures here. They demand God's provision. We do this when we make demands of God. We insist he work on our terms, our timing. Sometimes there's a need to simply wait and learn to be patient with God and with his timing. Excuse me. They question God's provision. They question God's protection. In the same way, we need to remember we can trust God. He has brought us through a greater exodus. They doubted God's presence. And we can think this too. They feel like they're abandoned in the wilderness, but God is always faithful. And these accusations of the people are just not true. Think of how the Psalms reflect on Israel's attitude here. Psalm 95, 9 says, Your fathers put me to the test, though they had seen my work. Your fathers put me to the test, though they'd seen my work. Man. Psalm 106, 13 said, They soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. God, help us to remember and to recall the ways in which you have been so faithful in our lives. To recall your good works and to let that build a faith in us for the worries of today. So once again, Moses prays and God provides. He is indeed with them. And he is indeed with you as you journey through whatever wilderness you are facing today. And in the times where you feel like complaining and grumbling, remember God is there to provide. Turn to him. Put your trust and faith in Jesus today. God is with you. And Jesus has gone before you. I want to mention very briefly as we wrap this up, three interesting connections between Israel's wilderness experience and Jesus' wilderness experience. Where Israel failed in the wilderness, Jesus passed the test. In Matthew 4 and Luke 4, after going through the waters of baptism, just like Israel going through the Red Sea, Jesus goes out into the wilderness to be tested. He's out there 40 days, which is corresponding and mirroring intentionally Israel's 40 years. Jesus is reenacting and fulfilling Israel's true destiny and identity. But instead of failing and giving into the temptation as they did, Jesus passed the test and he triumphs in victory. What does Satan try to do? He tries to make Jesus grumble about provision. And this goes directly back to our passage here in Exodus. Uh, Jesus as living out Israel's true purpose is being tempted with the exact same thing. And Jesus replies, Man does not live by bread alone, but by the word of God. Though the bread may be scarce, his true life is found in his relationship with his father, trusting in God's provision. So Jesus has gone ahead. He is being the truer and better Israel. In John 6, the people ask Jesus for a sign that they may see and believe him. And they bring up the manna, how Israel ate in the wilderness. And Jesus says this this to them in John 6, 32 to 36. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And I said to you that you have seen me, yet do not believe. Jesus 
is not only Israel who has gone before and passed the test, but he is God who feeds the multitude. He is the true and better Moses. He is Yahweh himself. He is now the bread coming, not just to feed them physically, but to actually deal with our sins, all of humanity's sins and brokenness, and bring us into everlasting life with God, to give life to the world. When we come to Jesus, we no longer hunger. When we come to Jesus and believe in him, we will never thirst again. Jesus satisfies the deepest longings of your heart, folks. He loves you and he will come and bring his grace and his care and his peace into each of our hearts. He can not only supply bread, but he can supply forgiveness for your sins and eternal life with God. And if you have never done it, I encourage you today to find the true life that is made available through Jesus Christ at the cross. Come to him today. Confess your sins. Repent and believe. God wants to forgive you. He wants to restore you. He wants to make you clean. Jesus came to give you life today. And finally, Jesus is the rock that was struck for our salvation. Moses struck the rock instead of striking the people and water flowed to save the people. Jesus is the rock that was struck for our salvation. Instead of striking us in our sin, God put himself in our place, allowing us to be stricken for our sin, allowing himself to go to the cross to die our death. Moses is told not to strike the rock again, but to speak to the rock. And Jesus too was struck once, but is now spoken to. He died the death so we could live. When he was struck, water flowed from Jesus' side. He is the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. He does not need to be struck again. His grace and forgiveness covers all of us always even the worst of sinners. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Through the cross, we can have eternal life, new living water for our souls. How do we respond to the wilderness university? Know that it is a part of life. God is sanctifying you. God is wanting to root out the evil in our own hearts, wanting to root out the brokenness that's there, the sinfulness that's there. We are called to learn to trust in God for his provision. We're called to learn not to have an attitude of complaining or grumbling against our neighbors or against God. And perhaps best of all, we are reminded here, called here, to trust in Jesus for every need in life, the deepest of needs, not just for bread and water, but for eternal life and for forgiveness, for salvation. Trust in the one who gave his life for you. Come to him today. He's the one who passed the test where we fail. He's the one who gave himself as the bread of life. He was the one that went to the cross and was struck for our salvation, that we could have the living water of eternal life. Friends, come to Jesus today, eat, drink, and find true hope in life. As we head continually through the Wilderness University, let's continue to follow Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.